most people who are here today will be aware that for the past 12 months we have been on a journey. A journey of discovery through the Bible in a year. And so from January to December 2011, we spent each Sunday or virtually every Sunday tracing the big story of Scripture, right from Genesis to Revelation. And this has been the slide of the graphic that we've shown and used every week. But this is the last time we'll see it. And this morning, I thought it would be really important and right to mark the end of that journey. Now, I realize that different people have engaged with this at different levels. And as we started out on this journey last January, there were maybe those who started out with great enthusiasm. And some kept it up for the whole year, and some it maybe kind of waned a little bit. But what I've done is I've invited a couple of people to come and share their reflections on this essential word series. So, Yule Webb is going to come and offer us some thoughts on the year as a whole and on the Bible as a whole. And then Tim Wart is going to come and refer to a specific moment or a specific Sunday or a specific sermon from that series. So, thank you, Yule, and then Tim. Thank you, David. <clears throat> 2011 has gone, and with it, <clears throat> one of the last opportunities to commemorate the King James Bible. <clears throat> in 100 years' time, that is in 2111, few people will even be aware of that translation. So this year has been the last opportunity to commemorate the King James Bible. That made it unique. It will be in 100 years' time as forgotten as the great Bible of Henry VIII or the Geneva Bible of the Puritans. So last year, David took us on a journey through the Bible and helped us to appreciate a number of things. Firstly, the Bible is a big book. It's easy to forget that the Bible sitting in front of you is over a thousand pages long. How many people have read a book a thousand pages long? Not many. But it's a big story. That's why it's a big book. A big story about the beginning of time and the end of time and everything else in between. Stories just don't come any bigger than that. <clears throat> As we traveled from Genesis to Revelation, we saw something of the sheer magnitude and scope of the subjects addressed by the Bible. <clears throat> we saw that quite recently when David read, Once before time, God created time. Then he created the angels. They sang, as Job tells us, they sang as they saw the created order emerge out of the void. It was a bit like washing your car with the radio on. The Bible is a titanic story. 
Secondly, he saw that the Bible was in some ways a strange book. As soon as we started the journey, we found ourselves in the unfamiliar and uncomfortable world of black tents and nomads, ritual animal slaughter, heavy incense, and all the exotic paraphernalia of the Orient. In fact, it was like entering a time warp. The first six books of the Bible take place during the Bronze Age, almost 4,000 years ago. But we don't live in the Bronze Age. We live in the CERN Age. Today we understand in detail the life cycle of the stars. It was a struggle to transport ourselves back into a culture completely different from our own in 21st century Northern Ireland. But we pressed on. And we're rather surprised to find that people then weren't all that different from people today. Their world was also filled with dysfunctional families, favoritism, deceit, strife, violence. But their stories were so real, they were almost unbearable at times. But there were also men and women of whom the world was not worthy. Thirdly, we were reminded last year that the Bible was not written in English, but in ancient languages of the Near East. Without the work of the early translators, David would be reading this morning to us from the Latin Vulgate. What we hold today in our hands in English is substantially what was what was contained in the original handwritten manuscripts. Supremely, however, what moves me personally most is that I can now read the very words of Christ himself. He said, with an authority unmatched in history, Before Abraham was, I am. And with unmistakable clarity he stated, No man can come unto me except the Father which sent me draw him. And then that glorious declaration, Today salvation is come to this house. We saw throughout last year that the Bible was so much more than a mere moral rule book. Then there were other things. We have had more opportunities to speak about the Bible during 2011 than in previous years. There has been a noticeable openness on the part of others to discuss the Bible because of the media coverage. Communication has been slightly less difficult 
Many times the discussion never got beyond the Bible as literature or its influence on the English language. But that did not discourage us. And for ourselves, we have come to see more clearly that the Bible is a coherent body of truth, a line of history of which we are part, and an increased desire to know more. That's the thing about the big story. There's always more. But it even goes beyond that. Because the message of 2011 is not just to read the Bible, but to come to love the Bible. Thank you, David. Do you ever feel sometime that a sermon has been delivered just for you? It seems to hit all your buttons and cut through your defences. Sometimes you even wonder if the pastor is directly getting at you. I suppose I can't really accuse David of that because the sermon I'm, I'm talking about I wasn't even here for. I was listening to the download from the website and I suppose it highlights the great treasure that we have in our online sermon repository. 2011 may have gone, essential word. This might be the last time, but it's all still there. And if you missed any, they're still there. I was listening to David's Sunday evening sermon from a couple of weeks back on Revelation 3 and 4, the churches of Philippi and Laodicea. And I was listening to it in the gym on the Monday morning. And for once, the greater pain was not that of my aging muscles. And the message is probably one that we need to hear many times and really summed up for me a lot of the essential words and what it was really about. The danger of losing our first love, the danger of not having a wholehearted devotion and love for Christ, and the danger of putting duty over devotion, of being lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. And that challenged me because duty is so much easier to appease. It's measurable, it's visible, it can become a routine without thinking, it can become easy for us can make us feel better in ourselves, it can validate our busyness and all that we've done throughout the year, but it can mask our fading devotion. And the challenge was stirring and painful, the challenge to remember, to repent, and to return. I thought it was a really fitting message coming towards the end of our year, an essential word, to remind us what is at the heart of our journey. As David Sayer quoted John Stott, not a work to be done or a fight to be fought, but a person to be loved. And whilst it was the specific message of this passage that really spoke to me, its application does extend to the whole of the Essential Word series. The message of this sermon was the same as the message of the spread of Scripture, calling us to repentance, declaring our redemption, drawing us close to God in relationship with him to praise and glorify his name. And I'm not one for New Year's resolutions really, but... Remember, repent, and return. It would be hard to find a better one than that. Thank you so much, Yul and Tim. Please don't panic. I am not about to uh, preach another sermon or a new sermon. I simply want to take about five, seven minutes that we have left to just remind us
of a few things from our essential word adventure as we close this service. So as we introduce this series, as I said, back on the 2nd of January 2011, we made the point that how you see the Bible, how you view the Bible is absolutely vital and it will determine your approach to it. And one of the things that we stressed or suggested was the need to ditch this idea of describing the Bible as a manual for life. Because in so many ways this can be and is an incredibly unhelpful approach to God's word. Because let's be honest, how many of us ever read or have any real desire to read a manual? We have them. The car, the microwave, the toaster. But they're just there for reference. We only use them in an emergency. They just lie at the back of a drawer or a cupboard. Manuals are considered dull. And very often they are. And so by describing the Bible as a manual for life, we risk putting it or relegating it into that category. It's not a manual for life. Let's ditch that image is how we started the year. And so what we did was we suggested that there were in fact a couple of alternative ways to see the Bible. And the reason that I'm doing this and going over this again is because although our journey is over, it can't be. It absolutely cannot be over. Our engagement with this every Sunday and throughout the week on a personal and small group level just must continue if we're going to grow and if we're going to finish this race well. And so the first approach that we drew attention to was to see the Bible through a lens of a number of different images which the Bible itself uses to describe itself and how the authors of the Bible describe God's word. And we made the point that if if you can see the Bible through this lens, if you can see it like this, it has the potential to revolutionize your approach to it. So what were the seven images? Who can remember any of them? Bread? Sorry? Hammer? Yep. A mirror, a scalpel, fire, sword. What are we missing? Light, a lamp. We said this. Man doesn't live in bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is God's word speaking of itself. Do not merely listen to the word. That whole teaching from James that says, listen, don't just look at it and walk away. You've got to look at it, hear what it's saying, see what it's reflecting back to you, and then react to it. It's a mirror. The powerful word. His powerful word is as sharp as a surgeon's scalpel, cutting through everything, whether doubt or defence, laying us open to listen and obey. Nothing and no one is impervious to God's word. We can't get away from it, no matter what. It's a lamp. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord. Is not my word like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces, And take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Hear 
are those seven images. The Bible is like a hammer. It can construct your life. It can destruct your life. It can shape you. If you see it like that. It can rip you apart. It can heal you. That's what a scalpel's used for healing. God's word's a weapon. A weapon of mass instruction. It's a lamp, it's a light, guides, illuminates, offers direction. It's daily sustenance, essential carbohydrate. It's a fire, it purifies, it burns, burns away the dross. And you see if you can see, I honestly believe, I've believed this passionately for a number of years, I must admit, and I know there are some people here from organisations like SU, and it's good to have Jeff with us this morning, who've heard me doing stuff in this in that context. But for me, it is so important that we don't see the Bible as this manual for life, but as these seven images that can change how we approach it. And at the start of the year, we used a prayer. And we prayed it again a couple of times during the year. And I've taken it, changed it slightly, and I'd like us to pray it now as a prayer of thanks at the end of a year. And so can I invite you to stand with me? And uh, again, if you pray the bits in yellow, I'll pray the bits in white. Father God... We thank you for the year that has just ended and for our journey through the Bible. As we celebrated your word, we resolved to read the Bible together and alone, to see your word through fresh eyes, to experience the story in a new way and to pray for those without access to your word in their heart language. Continue to use your word as a surgeon's scalpel cutting deep into our innermost thoughts and desires. And as your words become our words, may our lives reflect the living word more deeply and may our love for the word made flesh become stronger. Grab a seat. The second alternative way to see the Bible, and hopefully this emphasis has come through, and you'll made reference to this, is to see it as a story, a grand story, as the one true story of the world, a story that actually gives meaning to all peoples and all communities. But what is that story? And how do you begin to explain it or understand it? Well, a while ago I came across the Bible in 50 words. Okay, so you're ready for this? Here we go. God made, Adam bit, Noah arced, Abraham split, Jacob fooled, Joseph ruled, Bush talked, Moses balked, Pharaoh plagued, people walked, sea divided, tablets guided, promised landed, Saul freaked, David peaked, prophets warned, Jesus born, God walked, love talked, anger crucified, hope died, love rose, spirit flamed, word spread, God remained. 
there's the Bible in 50. That would have been a lot shorter journey, wouldn't it? <laughs> but yet it's so reductionist, isn't it? To say the least. It's so incomplete. Another way of saying it, and I find this incredibly helpful, is to imagine the big story as a six-act drama. And effectively this past year has been about us watching that being played out. Here they are. God establishes his kingdom creation, Act 1. Rebellion in the kingdom, Act 2, the fall. Act 3, huge act. King chooses Israel, redemption initiated. Scene 1, a people for the king, a land for his people. And then all that went with that. Then you have this interlude. The intertestamental period. And we did look at those years of silence. And increasingly, I must have been beginning to see how important it is to understand what was going on at that time, to know something of the context that Jesus stepped into. Because I think if we're ever really going to discover who Jesus was and is, we need to know more of what was going on at that time. But that's for David McMillan to sort out. Act 4, the coming of the king, redemption accomplished. Act 5, spreading the news of the king, the mission of the church from Jerusalem to Rome and then into all the world. And Act 6, the return of the king, redemption completed. Where do we find ourselves? Well, we are entrusted to continue Act 5 as we live in hope of Act 6. Back in Act 3, Israel was called to be a light to the nations and messed up. And then Jesus came as the light of the world, the true light that gives light to everyone. And then Jesus has given us his mission. We are to be lights to this world. You are the light of the world, said Jesus, as you love God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind. You love your neighbor as yourself as we embrace the great commandment and the great commission. That is the story that we find ourselves immersed in. That is the story that makes sense of all our stories and will continue to make sense of all of our stories. And my prayer for us this year is that as we continue to engage, which we will be doing, as we continue to engage with this amazing book, we will discover, as you have said, that there's more. But not only that, we will get to know the author better. This amazing God. And for me, one of the highlights of 2011 was this reminder of who God is. And we first came across it in Exodus 34, but as we said then, these words and this description of God is so fundamentally important to the whole story that it keeps coming back time and time again throughout the story. Here we find a critical snapshot of the story's author. Here's who God is. Here is a description of his character. Here is his heart. And understanding this then sets up and clarifies how God deals with the people. The hope that's locked up in these words is life-changing. God is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness. And back in March, we used a particular visual reminder that has stuck with me. Can anyone remember what the visual reminder was we used alongside this? Volcano, thank you, Richard. A God who's constantly exploding in an overflow of love 
and faithfulness that just keeps spilling out on us. I love that idea. I love that idea. A God whose love is maintained to thousands. It lasts. It perseveres. It keeps on exploding. And yet alongside that, God is slow to anger. Do you know, if God immediately judged us every time we messed up or did something wrong, we'd be wiped out in a split second. And yet, incredibly, God is slow to anger. Extraordinarily patient and long-suffering. Doesn't mean that God will never express his anger. God will someday judge. That's act six. Justice will be done. For now, thank God for all our sakes, he's slow to anger. And finally, we discover the reason God's slow to anger. Because he's compassionate and he's gracious. And he wants to forgive our wickedness and our rebellion and our sin. You see, God doesn't ignore sin forgives it the God of the new start and I love that picture and that image of God as we step into 2012 and whenever Moses first heard that about God and he was the first person to hear it because God said it to him directly what was Moses' response whenever he discovered this about God anyone know he just fell down and worshipped because it's the only response it's the only appropriate response is worship and so as we step away from one year and into another may we constantly find ourselves in the worship of a great God who is worthy of our praise who alone is God eternal throughout heaven and earth seven images a big story an amazing God